0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report, featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotron.com/agony. Tonight we're going to start off with a couple of readings by the authors, um, and then we're going to talk about because what I like about both these authors is they set their books in places that are very different from where we all live, but you cannot help but be flashing back constantly to our own empire in decline when you hear them, when you read their books. So uh, let's start. Um, would you like to start, Donnie? You seem to have...
1: I, I feel like I'm the support actor tonight. <laughs>
0: No, you're not. We're no, no, all... no, no.
1: It's you don't follow the Beatles. Um, <laughs> you're at you know. And this, so all the people that come because they're late, you know, they'll say, "Who's that person there?" <laughs> and um, we're all waiting for Martin Cruz Smith. So this is um, my name is Tony Broadbent. I write about a cat burglar in post-war London. Uh, that's in England. Um, <laughs> And that was just about the time that uh, 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 England began to lose its empire. Uh, uh, England was bankrupt. You may have heard of it. There was a war. And we stood alone uh, with Australia New Zealand, South Africa and Canada. Uh, But we still stood alone. And for about a year before uh, you wonderful people came to join us in the war that um, had to be uh, fought, against true evil, because you could identify the evil. Anyway, we won it with your help, and thank you very much. (laughs) Um, uh, The the money uh, that we we used uh, uh, to fight that war, in fact, one of the things that um, President Roosevelt did, was send a a large American warship to South Africa to get all the remaining British gold and take it uh, back to New York. And most of the British businesses of the time uh, were sold to American interests at a fire sale, I think it was called. Uh, We paid all the money back in, uh, uh, let me see, in 1999. All the money was paid back to um, uh, America, and we thank you. We still owe money to Canada, uh, but that's another story. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Rick uh, sent us an email and said, you know, read something that might reflect uh, the present condition in America. So I thought, you're entering austerity. I'll read you what was called the prologue of uh, this book called The Smoke. The Smoke is a cockney slang for London town. You have Big Apple for New York. We call London the smoke, and that's based on all the smokestacks. If if you think of William Blake and the um, uh, dark satanic mills, well, London was a dark satanic mill. And until the middle 50s, we had the fogs of Sherlock Holmes, but since then... Even the buildings that I knew as a child, I can't even recognise anymore because they're no longer dirty; they're all white. And that's what they call it, Whitehall. Oh, never mind. <laughs> but first, a word or two in your shell-like ear. The war had ended, but the peace that followed was uh, far worse than anybody could have ever expected. Rationing was in full force. We all had to carry identity cards. Crime was on the rise, and there were masses of unrest. Bread went on ration in the summer of forty-six, and was kept on for over two years, and they'd never had to do that once during all the all the fighting. Then they cut the meat allowance in half and tried to make up for it by bringing in horse meat, whale steaks, and something called snook. Don't ask me what the hell that was when, when it was at home, because it came in a tin and tasted bloody awful. But that was just about par for the course for anything you could officially get your hands on, as anything halfway decent went straight away for export. You had to put up with it, though, because there was nothing else. Nothing. And around London's East End, or what was left of it after the Blitz, a good few people started eyeing their cats and dogs in a different light. I can tell you. Make, Do and Mend, it was called. And just to rub it all in, it was the cruelest winter in living memory. The River Thames froze over and snow blanketed the streets. And if that wasn't bad enough, the idiots had gone and nationalized the coal mines. And when the Smithfield Market porters went on strike, they had to send the army in to keep the meat moving. There would have been rioting in the streets otherwise, and that was something the powers that be could never let happen. And in those first bone-chilling months of 1947, it looked as if Clement Attlee's Labour government had done what even Adolf Hitler hadn't managed to do, and that was bring the country to its knees. There was no heat, no light and no water. Factories were at a complete standstill and so were the roads and the railways. Big Ben froze solid and for a while it seemed to many of us as if time itself had stood still or started going backwards because millions of men found themselves thrown out of work again. And deep down inside everybody feared another depression and the mass unemployment that went along with it. It was the frigging nightmare of the 30s come back to haunt us. No jobs meant no wages, and that meant the dole or the means test, and no one who'd lived through it all before could ever forget it, and neither could their kids. It marked you for life. The Blitz had nothing on it. If a jerry bomb got you, at least you went quick. The only way to survive was to bend the rules. There was no other choice. Everything was on ration, eggs, bacon, tea, margarine, cornflakes. Tinned milk, tinned apricots, tinned sardines, coats, skirts, trousers, socks, shoes, underpants. And to add insult to injury, you had to queue for anything worth having, whatever it was. People only had to see a queue, and they'd go and stand at it, even if, even if they didn't know what the hell it was for. And if you, didn't know, if you didn't want whatever it was, you took it anyway and traded it for something else later. Even with only half a brain, you could see the black market was one of the few things in the country that was working properly or at all. So everyone was on the fiddle in one way or another, and I do, do mean everyone. High-born or low, it made no difference. Nobs, toffs, men of the cloth, the whole lot of them. The ladies, too, whether they came from Mayfair or Hackney Wick. And if you ever tried pushing your way in front of them, you'd be lucky if you got away in one piece, let alone with the skin still on your back. They could strip a spiv, uh, that's Cockney back slang for VIPs, they could strip a spiv, or very important persons, of whatever he'd got in his suitcase in minutes, whether it was nylons, lipstick, perfume, whiskey, or a tin of peaches. Horrible to watch it was. But you couldn't blame them for it. You've always got to look out for yourself, haven't you? It's how we're made. And unless you're prepared to push and shove with the rest of them, you and your own just end up going without And who in their right mind would ever want that to happen? I know it was a right carry-on, but it was the only way most people could carry on during those hard times. Britain can take it. Yes, and they did too, and with both hands. Because the honest truth is there's a little bit of larceness villainy in each and every one of us, but none of us ever need be ashamed of it. All it takes is the worst of circumstances to bring it out into the open. Then you just watch as polite society starts to crumble around you. Take me. When I was a kid, we had nothing. No money, no property of our own, nothing. Not even a good name to keep up, only the the tradition of surviving. And any silver spoons we had in our house had been nicked from somewhere else, and even then they always ended up down the pawn shop. So very early on, like everyone else round our way, I had to learn how to survive, and I did. But even I had to be a bit nimble to get me and my own through those grim years of austerity that followed the war. And just like everyone else, I bent the rules. Only I bent them until they broke and then just kept on going. But I reckon that'd be just about par for the course for a hard-working London cat burglar, wouldn't you? The smoke.
0: Martin, would you like to read from uh, three stations?
2: Sure, I'll read the uh, first chapter. The summer nights swam by, villages, ripening fields, derelict churches flowed and mixed with Maya's dreams. She tried to stay awake but sometimes her eyelids had their way. Sometimes the girl dreamt of the trains first-class passengers tucked away asleep in their compartments. Hard class had no compartments. Hard class was a dormitory coach where a few lamps were still lit and snoring, muffled sex, body odor and domestic quarrels were shared by all. Some passengers had been in the train for days and the fatigue of close quarters had set in. A round-the-clock card game among oil riggers soured and turned to resentment and accusations. A gypsy went from birth to birth hawking a shawl. University students traveling on the cheap were deep in the realm of their headphones. A priest brushed cake crumbs from his beard. Most of the passengers were as nondescript as boiled cabbage. An inebriated soldier wandered up and down the corridor. Still, Maya preferred the rough sociability of hard class to traveling first class. Here, she fit in. She was 15 years old, a stick figure in torn jeans and a bomber jacket, the texture of cardboard. Her hair dyed a fiery red. One canvas bag held her earthly possessions. The other hid her baby girl of three weeks, tightly swaddled and lulled by the rocking of the train. The last thing Maya needed was to be trapped in a compartment under the scrutiny of snobs. Not that she could have afforded first class anyway. After all, a train was just a communal apartment on rails, Maya decided. She was used to that. Most of the men stripped to warm up pants, undershirts and slippers for the duration. She watched for any who had not because a shirt with long sleeves might conceal the tattoos of someone sent to bring her back. Playing it safe, she had chosen an otherwise empty berth. She talked to none of the other passengers and none noticed that the baby was on board. Maya enjoyed creating stories about new people, but now her, cre- her imagination was caught up with a baby who was both a stranger and part of herself. The baby was, in fact, the most mysterious person she had ever met. All she knew was that her baby was perfect, translucent, unflawed. The baby stirred and Maya went to the vestibule at the end of the car. There, half open to the wind and clatter of the train, she nursed the baby and indulged in a cigarette. A full moon kept pace. From the tracks spread a sea of wheat, water tanks, the silhouette of a shipwrecked harvester, Six more hours to Moscow. The baby's eyes regarded her solemnly. Returning the gaze, Maya was so hypnotized that she did not hear the soldier join her in the vestibule until the sliding door closed behind him, and he said smoking was bad for the baby. His voice was a jolt, a connection with reality. He removed the cigarette from her mouth and snapped it out the vestibule window. Maya took the baby from her breast and covered herself. The soldier asked if the baby was in the way. He thought it was. So he told Maya to put the baby down. She held on, although he slid his hand inside her jacket and squeezed her breast hard enough to draw milk. His voice cracked when he told her what else he wanted her to do. But first, she had to put the baby down. If she didn't, he would throw the baby off the train. It took a second for Maya to process his words. If she screamed, could anyone hear her? If she fought, would he toss the baby like an unwanted package? She saw it covered with leaves, never to be found. All she knew was that it was her fault. Who was she to have such a beautiful baby? Before she could put the baby down, the vestibule door opened. A large figure in gray stepped out, gathered the soldier's hair with the grip of a butcher, and laid a knife across his neck. It was the babushka who had been suffering the crumbs of the priest. The old woman told the soldier she would geld him next time they met and gave him a vigorous kick as a demonstration of sincerity. He could not get to the next car fast enough. When Maya and the baby returned to their birth, the, the babushka brought tea from a sam- samovar and watched over them. Her name was Helena Ivanova, but she said that everyone up and down the line called her Aunt Lena. Worn out, Maya finally allowed herself to plunge into true sleep down a dark slope that promised oblivion. When Maya next opened her eyes, sunlight flooded the coach. The train was at a platform and the dominant sound was flies circling in the warm air. The fullness in her breast was urgent. Her wristwatch said 7.05. The train was expected to arrive at 6.30. There was no sign of Angelina. Both baskets were gone. Maya rose and walked unsteadily down the corridor. All the other passengers, the boisterous oil riggers, the university boys, the gypsy and the priest, were gone. Aunt Helena was gone. Maya was the only person on the train. Maya stepped onto the platform and fought her way through early morning passengers boarding a train on the opposite side. People Mm -hmm. stared. A porter let his baggage cart coast into her shin. The ticket takers at the gate didn't remember anyone resembling Aunt Helena and the baby. It was a preposterous question. People in the platform area were making goodbyes, and hundreds circulated around kiosks and shops selling cigarettes, CDs, and slices of pizza. A thousand more sat in the haze of the waiting room. Some were going to the wilds of Siberia, some all the way to the Pacific, and some were just waiting. But the baby was gone.
0: Well, one of the things that I liked about both of of what these books, and, and what I think both of you guys are doing really well, is creating places that seem very, very different from where we are right now, from anywhere in America, and yet... There's no way as you read these books you can't help but think of everything that's happening to you right now. And that's a really in- interesting kind of dissonance. And I think it has to do with a lot of different things. And so first I, I'd like each of you, let, let's start with you, Tony. Talk about some of the research that you have to do to create you know, London right after the, the World War II. That's, you can't go visit there, can you?
1: Uh, luckily I, I did go visit there. Um, (laughs) soon after uh, the Second World War I was born at the end of the 40s, beginning of the 50s and my father would take me up to London Uh, oddly enough there was um, an annual ceremony, he used to take me up to see the statue of President Roosevelt in Grosvenor Square and uh, I would be in my school uniform or my wolf cub uniform and uh, he would salute it and so would I and he'd say without that man and Mr. Churchill we wouldn't be here and that was, uh, then I'd be taken up the street to Selfridges to meet Father Christmas and Uncle Holly. So for me, Winston Churchill, President Roosevelt, Father Christmas and Uncle Holly were all very real <laughs> in my in my extreme youth. Uh, then as um, uh, he would take me to um, uh, the museums, uh, and then for a special treat, I would go to a street market. It would either be Petticoat Lane uh, or one of the ones that I, in fact, uh, purloined in, in my own novels is Church Street Market, just off the Edgware Road, and it was the sights and sounds of that. And even one particular occasion, uh, he pulled me, literally, into a shop doorway and said, "That's Jack Spot," and in my piping treble, uh, this is pre you understand, I went, "Who's Jack Spot?" And it was in fact one of the great crime bosses, the crime lords of uh, the London underworld. And we both survived that. Uh, without, like, Ramon Manuel being given um, uh, a fish, a dead fish, <laughs> uh, for the next stage of our journey, but those sights and sounds were um, uh, are very much part and parcel of what I write about. And if I can quote Graham Greene, uh, uh, you know, in the story "England Made Me." Well, England did make me, but I wanted to try and understand why it made me in the way I was, who I am, and why it made the country that I was born into this uh, this time of great austerity. Um, where I don't think I saw a, an orange or banana until I was, you know, eight or nine years of age, so literally. Um, and uh, it, it, was, it was a strange time, and I wanted to go back and, uh, and visit it. So it's really just personal experience, as opposed to Martin, of course, we all know, was born in Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the name Cruz. Martin.
0: <laughs> Tell us where, where, your, where, your, where your research is started and ended
2: well um, my research uh, began in 1973 when i went to moscow and simulate mm-hmm. for some reason they let me in uh, i was the sort of the antithesis of the kind of tourists they usually let in uh, how, how did you uh, wh- what made you go there in the first place i went to do a story about an american detective who showed that russians had to solve a, a murder case <laughs> and i got there and i said my god this what a, what a silly idea that is i mean really what's demanded here is, is, a, is a Russian story through Russian eyes. And so instead of uh, Bill Kerwill, uh, detective, uh, NYPD, I had Arkady Renko, uh, chief In- and uh, senior investigator. And uh, that unfortunately meant that I was committing myself to an enormous amount of research because I didn't know anything. I started you know, as, as cleanly as, as, a, as a babe. Uh, and uh, I, I didn't speak Russian. I knew very little about Russia. I, that I'd always been interested in politics, and uh, I had to build up everything from the from the bottom up. But it, but it was great fun. I, I love research for one thing. It's not writing. <laughs> you know you can you can claim to be you know you, you can claim you can be eating uh, something like a plate of spaghetti in, in, as long as it's in Rome. room, and that that makes it uh, research. <laughs>
0: So I I, I, I don't I, know if borscht in Ru- if <laughs> a bowl of borscht in Russia is quite as appealing as a as a plate of spaghetti in Rome though. <laughs> well, we we always
2: got the same meal when I was there back in seventy three. It was it was it was identified as fish salad, <laughs> but but the, the fish had swum by. It was ba- it was potatoes. <laughs> and you know, the thing is that they they act as if you don't know it's potatoes. <laughs> it was, really? At that time. But, but in fact in fact they, they they knew they knew the waiter knew that it was that he was going to get no thanks in return and so he he decided not to uh, visit your table and that was par for the course
0: well you know it strikes me boy if you've been going there since 1973 you have seen literally uh, a revolution but yeah. well, and, and I never
2: thought I was going to write more than one Russian book but then Russia changed and I couldn't get back in I was officially persona non grata and I was I was really feet, uh, there's uh, a how'd you find that out uh, I found it out because uh, people who were, who had copies of Gorky Park were arrested, <laughs> and put, <laughs> took, put, put given two years in jail. Oh my God! <laughs> and there was a guidebook given to all uh, Russian Soviet past uh, travelers, uh, saying, "Watch out for uh, provocateurs, mm-hmm. including Martin Cruz Smith."
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: really? So uh, it, it was. <laughs> I tell you, it's one of my proudest, proudest possessions—is that notebook. <laughs> well, I'd imagine so. But then, I, then as you say, I, I, I got to witness this, this evolution, and uh, we, you get to see how evolution really works—not smoothly, <laughs> and not necessarily in the path you think it's going to take. Uh, but it's been—I've uh, backed into this uh, chronology, this history of uh, of, of Russia.
0: Wow, that—that's really fascinating. Now. Tony, one of the things that strikes me about these two books is they both take place in capital cities. Um, and I love, there's a great line in your book, uh, Martin, where, uh, where is uh, thinking that uh, there's, there are no uh, casinos, there are no slot machines on the steps of the White House or uh, Buckingham Palace. And I'm just thinking, well, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> but we're, we're on our way there. So, uh, Tony, talk about, you know, creating London as a capital city. It's emblematic of an entire country.
1: I don't have to create it. It's in <laughs> everybody's mind. I mean, it's everything that anybody's ever read about, seen on film. If they've read Sherlock Holmes, you know, London already exists. It's not work that I have to do. What I've got to try and draw them into mm. is the London of, of a particular time. Mm. Um, as I said, uh, uh, alluded to earlier, um, London, when I grew up, was dirty uh, soot stained uh, it was black, everything was black apart from the buses and they were dirty red or pillar boxes or phone boxes, and they were dirty red. Um, just to give you a sense the, the great there was a killer fog it was a wonderful thing you know it 's still used as the uh, the reference uh, for all smogs worldwide. Um, uh, so many people died that they 've used that, and just to give you a sense. The fog was so bad. Over oh, Churchill, uh, who was um, at a meeting at a hotel north of Hyde Park, couldn't get to couldn't get back to Downing Street, so he had to stay the night in the hotel because there was no way they could get him the mile and a half back down to Whitehall. And the um, all the theatrical events that were occurring, let me see, oh, Sadler's Wells, they had to stop the ballet because the, the ballet performance because the fog had come in, gone down through the orchestra, and was there. Uh, obliterating the, um, uh, the, the events and happening on the stage. So they had to do it just in case people, um, uh, uh, a ballerina was thrown and not caught. <laughs> and various players were stopped uh, in mid-act. The famed second act uh, never ever got completed because they had to stop it because you couldn't see what was happening. So, you know, London, I don't have to invent that. I've just got to report it or steal it. That's a nice thing. I just want to say, you know, Gorky Park. I'm, that just landed like a bombshell to anybody that uh, was was reading thrillers. It was such a brilliant idea. Bill, It really was. It still is. It resonates. Just well, I'm I'm,
2: uh, I'm flattered, but uh, I know too much. I know too much about you know the, the creation of that of that of that book, and I you know, I still see, see myself racing from 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 uh, theatrical flat and prop to you know to one one to another just holding things up, you, just, you know, we want to freeze this scene and, you know, uh, you, you end up praying that it doesn't fall flat.
1: Well, you know, after Tolstoy, there were no Russian heroes, and what you did, you brought a Russian back as a hero into Western literature. You did, because a Russian cop, a detective, I wouldn't feel anything about it, and I was absolutely.
2: Well, neither did, the, neither did my publisher. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's a story I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I had the pleasure of um, uh, interviewing uh, 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 Martin uh, uh, just over a year ago at, the, at uh, a place in Cornwall, Madeira, called Book Passage, and um, marvellous stories. But I just think that Gorky Park is like one of those great, as all the other Arkady Ren- Renko novels, but that one is that signal in our in our industry, in our business. So my my respects to you on that.
2: Thank you. Uh, but Let's talk about you. Okay, yes. <laughs>
1: oh, please come in. There's, um, there's chairs. And... Thanks. Actually, we'll start from the beginning again. <laughs> uh, I've been asked to read from the... Okay, <laughs> <then>. <laughs> Uh
0: One of the things that, of course, makes uh, both these books tick are your heroes, and you refer to Arkady Renko as, you know, he is a great Russian hero, and one of the things I really love about both your heroes is that they are not perfect good guys. Neither of them is. And, and I'd like you to talk about one of the things, we were talking about the evolution of Russia. Talk about evolving your character through all this time and, and how you must have had a, a, a lot of fun, really. Well, Ar- Ar- Arkani sort of has been, Ar-
2: Arkani has a sense of humor. Absolutely. And, and These
0: books are hilarious. This is so funny.
2: But a lot of people miss the humor. <laughs> a lot of people think it's just just bloody. But I, I love having having a, a character to, who, 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 who's, as he's being beaten, and uh, you know, recognizes the uh, the uh, sort of the inanity of the situation. I mean, here he is. He's, he should be he should be the one who's delivering the blows instead of being the, the punching bag.
0: Well, there's a great sense of kind of absurdist and surreal. This book is, I think, rather surreal to read. I mean, it's kind of, uh, it's almost like a, a Fellini movie in some ways. There's all so well, much you know, weird that's,
2: stuff. That's the fun of it. I mean, the fun—you know, you can do anything. You sit down, and you know, <laughs> and you say, you know, "Just let's tear into this one." I mean, let's—you know—there uh, are some rules here that are broken. About people, you don't kill off. <laughs> <laughs> And that, but that's no
0: guarantee Or In fact, it's quite the opposite. Well, that's one of the things I think that, uh, that these books both do. Because you're setting your books in uh, a crumbling empire, which is so much like our crumbling American empire, you can pull off a lot of surprises. So I, I'd like you each to talk about this kind of uh, fall of Rome feel that you bring both to the settings that you create but also to, you know, when we're sitting around reading this, I, I read this book and I think, oh, my God, this is our future. Holy, holy, mm-hmm. no, holy. And you were pointing to three stations. You were pointing to three stations, yes. And, well, the piece you read, Tony, I mean, it sounds like, you know, what we can expect, you know, in There were no stations <laughs> mentioned anywhere uh, in the piece I um, uh, uh,
1: Paddington, maybe? No, no, Waterloo. Um London post-war. I'm vamping. This is there a question there? Yeah. Uh,
0: Talk talk about uh, just creating this falling empire. Oh, the falling empire. And also how you draw from where you are now. I mean, you're right. You're writing about your childhood, but you're probably sitting somewhere in uh, northern California doing it.
1: Uh, Yes. uh, All I've got to do is um, uh, pull the curtains down. uh, get something, a uh, steamer going in the room <laughs> to create the fog. Uh, no uh, uh, Somebody once said the heart of the matter can best be seen from afar, and in some ways, because you have to um, magic it up again, um, uh, it's somewhat um, it 's not easy to write, but I, I find that with um, oh no let 's be honest, I steal it all. <laughs> um, I, 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 I buy autobiographies of uh, policemen and, uh, and uh, villains, and I, I, I buy uh, books uh, that were published. I look for books published uh, post-war in the first 10, 15 years of photographs, and the, pleasingly, that most of them are in black and white before you get to the really bad, cheap color printing uh, that, that emerged um, in the late 50s, early 60s. And um, I go on that voyage of rediscovery, and it just is. It's, and the humility is not to project myself upon it, but to try and let it reveal itself to me. Um, uh, so it's, it's as much of a journey for me, and I hope that sort of comes through in the books. Um, you were talking about the, the heroes. Uh, uh, my, has a somewhat biblical, biblical name, it's called Jethro. That's because the actual man he's based on was called Jethro. I, I told you, steal, steal everything. And that was only because his own children couldn't pronounce the word Jeffrey, so they called him Jeffro. Um, and I actually, I put my own father, my mother and father, my father appears in it, uh, and he's, he was called Seth, so I have this nice biblical allusion. It goes well in Salt Lake City, this book. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, what it was, basically, after the death of my father, I was devastated, I met somebody. He told me about his father, who had also died recently. And the more I heard about the two men, uh, the more I realized that they would have um, uh, uh, gone on like a house on fire, is a British term, because both, both men had been born in the uh, 1910s. They would both lived through the early Depression. Uh, they would both tried to rationalize their own lives within that. And both literally run away, one to the Merchant Navy, which was uh, this character called Jethro, and my own father who ran away and joined the British Army and was in India for 10 years. So he literally was part of the Jewel of the Crown. And then they both fought this war to end all wars, again, the Second World War, and they both had this extreme morality where uh, a family and friend and their words was the absolute bonds of their life. They couldn't have been more different. Uh, one was a professional thief and uh, the other wasn't, and yet both of them shared this view of how to uh, create the world for your family and yourself, and to work and survive, and um, I thought the two of them, I'd love to have met the two of them in their prime, and I thought bugger it, they will, and I'll write it, and that's how the smoke came into being, and it was that journey to revisit uh, my father at that time, and to visit uh, Chris's father, uh, my friend, and that was the, for me, the the architecture, if you like, of going back to that London of post-war
0: Martin, you know you had to create uh, Arcady from whole cloth uh, and he's changed through 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 the books. Talk about that you know creating somebody. this must be like somebody you can talk to when you're sitting at home, uh, and nobody else is there. Do you do that? Do what? Uh, talk to Arkady. Talk to Arkady. No, I tell you what I do. I I,
2: I find myself in a fix. Uh, I'm, I'm in a let's say a, a descending uh, elevator, in which the cables have been snapped, and I'm plunging down 40 floors. And um, and I said to myself, I can't figure out how to de- get out of this. I'm not, I'm sure a more intelligent man could. Um, and that's what I call an Arkady. Uh and, and he, he, he finds a, a way, but I, a way I never would have thought of myself. And that—that's constantly the, uh, the case. And he's just got. There's an unpredictability about Arcadi. That's the. There's a spontaneity about him, which I think is fairly unusual uh, for uh, something that uh, is a, a sort of political thriller drama. Uh, and I'm I'm constantly uh, surprised by my characters. A character will wander. Walk in. I know I'm supposed to be talking about Arcati, uh, but a, a character will come in and and push herself or himself into my vision and not get out of the way. And I interact if they if they interact with Arcati and if he is engaged by them, then I'm engaged. I, I really try to just follow his lead. He's much more spontaneous than I am, much more ingenious. Uh, it's fun to be working with Arcati. Uh, I couldn't stand it, the idea of spending all that time with a, with a character. That, uh, that I didn't uh, think was uh, brighter than me and, uh, and, uh, and a lot of fun and just a tiny bit perverse
0: well I, one of the things I think that makes uh, both of these books so powerful is it's, it's a very indistinct feeling the ambience both of these books have a really distinct ambience this, like I say Three Stations is like almost like a scene from a Fellini movie it's surreal, and it's just a little bit. Everything, like you say, is is really off balance. You never know what's going to happen, and even in a scene where things should kind of remain sensible. Something really weird might happen, <laughs> and, and, and I think in, in alien comedy, <laughs> alien comedy, <laughs> perfect. So talk about just creating that ambience, that 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 pervades your books. It's something that's outside of the characters and the setting.
2: I was once at a, at a, at a part-time job, and uh, no, actually I was interviewing for a job, and I was, this was in Philadelphia, Germantown, Philadelphia, and the uh, wind was about uh, uh, 40 miles per hour, and it was, it was sort of ripping my clothes off even as I walked. And I thought, among, among other things, I'm never going to stay in Philadelphia. Uh, and the other one was, this really is awful. And but it's, but I'll, I'll never forget how cold how cold this is. You know, you, 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 some things that happen. As Nietzsche said, that which doesn't kill you is material. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, you just, you, just this, you, you remember moments. And they just, you know, they're, they're, they're there. Will you please look at, look at them? They're glowing, for God's sakes, you know.
1: Isn't there that phrase, I'd rather be dead than in Philadelphia? <laughs> <laughs> and remember what W.C. Fields had on his tombstone, I'd, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. <laughs> the old ones are the good ones.
0: You, you know, uh, I'm just thinking of one of the scenes in, in uh, your book where uh, Buggy Billy... At, did you actually see Buggy Billy? And that just creates, that's part in the right. market. He's selling, dipping bug uh, a stick into honey and selling
1: yeah, bugs. Um,
0: did you see that?
1: I, I stole that, actually. <laughs> I, I, I actually knew Buggy Billy. You did? I knew Buggy Billy. Although did you buy was, bugs from him? I, I didn't. That wasn't the name that he used when I knew him. He uh, was... Um, but again, after the Second World War, uh, people did what they did to survive. and he told me uh, that he put together a bug uh, a bug farm on a bomb site near Paddington Station. And the way he had of selling them was he fashioned a long leather glove that literally covered his entire arm. He had a um, uh, 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 an oil drum full of tar and he would put his arm into that. Then he had another oil drum full of these bugs that he'd taken from his bug farm. He would stick his arm, covered with tar and honey and things like that, into the into the drum of bugs and hold it up. And he would go, buggy belly, buggy belly. <laughs> and um, believe me, uh, people came and, uh, you know, uh, uh, I've got photographs. There was one famous bug expert um, that was selling Keating's powder, and it used to say on the front of his cart, um, lousy but loyal.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and uh, if you think that the bed bug infestation in New York is something, you should have been in anywhere, really, in uh, Post war London, um, uh, where e- even the fleas took in lodges. Um, LAUGHTER and it was that again. It's the the costermongers, the costa. I mean, think of um, uh, any London market. The cries of the costers selling their wares would they would just try not do one another. And uh, that was his shtick. That was his market ploy. And he would he would have um, uh, 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 a team of boys that would be the first handoff boy, the second handoff boy that would be taking the money, rather like the Baker Street Irregulars. So. I stole those characters. I mean, I've taken all the names of the characters in my book, I've stolen from people I was either at school with, or people that I wanted to kill. Um, and I do. Uh, it's it's great fun. Not that I'll ever admit that, again, in public.
0: Martin, you know, and, and uh, Tony, one of the things that we find in your book is this... Uh, something that we are experiencing a lot now is fear of immigrants. I mean, whenever there's hard times, the the anti-immigration rhetoric just ramps right up. It's impo- nobody remembers it now, but there was a serious anti-immigration uh, movement during the Great Depression here and right afterwards. And, and we have your your characters are uh, in Russia. They're they're worried about the Tajiks. So talk about creating that kind of ambience.
2: Well, it's, it's a curious one. Uh, it, it, it's reflected a little bit in their relationship with Cuba, too, mm-hmm. uh, when they cut that cut Cuba loose. Uh, but they, the Russians have gone through a, a, a sudden awakening. They, uh, with uh, the breakup of the empire, uh, they, all the stands suddenly, Kazakhstan uh, and other, the other, Tajikistan, Turkestan, uh, suddenly came into being. And the first thing they did was, did was kick out the Russians. <laughs> and, and, and the Russians had been there for a, a couple of generations were were genuinely hurt. They thought that all these people, all these Central Asian people, just loved being partners with big brother Russia. And then suddenly they, they, were, they, they were all thrown out and they were, <coughs> they were really upset, especially when the, 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 uh, the Central Asians, Chechens among, among others, uh, started showing up the uh fruit markets in uh, in Moscow, so they feel a little bit uh double dealt there uh, at the same time of course they 've got a demographic time bomb happening, which is that they that uh, they 're not not reproducing enough russians and you can look at a place like siberia China would be very happy to take that uh, off russia 's hands
3: mm.
1: and and this Oh, well, in England, we have entirely different. Um, uh, you have the aristocracy, and everybody else is an immigrant. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and that, in the in the book, i uh, Spectres in the Smoke. I, the two spectres are the um, the rise again of fascism in post-war London, England, and uh, and the the emerging spectre of communism. And in fact, when Winston Churchill was voted out of office. Um, uh, Uh, Having won the war, um, uh, even uh, Roosevelt called him and said, Winston, who is this man, Clement Attlee? And Winston said, uh, He's a modest man, sir, and he has much to be modest about. (laughs) Or the other one he said, It was, uh, uh, there's rather less to him than meets the eye. (laughs) Uh, But that was the time that the uh, American uh, CIA started, of course, uh, out of the OSS, the Operation Office of Strategic Service, but the CIA started soon after. And one of its prime directives was to spy on uh, and infiltrate all the political groups within England, because they were rather perplexed that uh, with Winston having uh, won the war, they didn't make him king, they threw him out of office. Whereas you made Eisenhower your president. I mean, just it's the mindset. And uh, so the whole sense of the emerging uh, Labour Party uh, coming into office, and even though the country was essentially bankrupt, um, they nationalized the banks, they nationalized the mines, they nationalized the steel industry, they nationalized the transport industry. Oh, they, did, they, they started a thing called the National Health, where everybody had uh, health from the cradle to the grave. Uh, quite an interesting concept for a bankrupt country. <laughs> anyway, um, during that time, uh, there was a rise of a gentleman that had been in England throughout the 30s called Sir Oswald Mosley. And if you ever um, come across a British uh, historian called David Kennedy, and there's a wonderful essay which tracks the, and parallels the two lives of Sir Oswald Mosley and Sir Winston Churchill. And you find how exact they are all the way through. And he says it's to our great good fortune that it was uh, Sir Winston, Winston Churchill that emerged victorious as opposed to Sir Oswald Mosley, who uh, Hitler had already um, uh, uh, determined was going to be the uh, the The de facto head of um, a Nazi England, uh, with the then Duke of Windsor and uh, Wallace Simpson, the figureheads, and they would be in charge of course of everything north of Oxford, and the Nazis under Sir Os- Oswald Mosley would have ruled um, England below Oxford and all of southern England so in a sense, when you find that in post war London there was an emergence of money and funding for Sir Oswald Mosley to start building up his uh, British Union movement, again, in the east end of London, of all places. Um, You have to ask yourself, where did the money come from? Where did the political support come from? And uh, there was a serious um, concern that, indeed, the Labour Party was going to be the thin end of the communist wedge, that, in fact, Joe Stalin's uh, um, million-man-standing army Do forget that the only reason that um, bread went on rationing in post war London, post war England rather, was to feed the Germans uh, so that they would in fact be the first bulwark against uh, Joe Stalin's uh, tanks and army. And that was the plan to try and hold Joe uh, from getting to the Channel ports within uh, 14 days and try and push it to uh, three or four weeks, by which time America could once again um, come back into the war. How do we get onto that? <laughs> anyway, uh, Spectres, there
0: you go. Martin, talk about the uh, declining aristocracy in, in your novel as, as we have represented. And I think it's really interesting that how you, there's a great line in there how uh, one of the, one of the uh, oligarchs has just uh, gotten out of prison and now he's, he's running a hedge fund which I think is, uh, uh, sounds quite familiar to those of us here.
2: Well, there, there was the, the uh, sacking of, uh, it's a little bit like the sacking of Rome, but, but by the Romans, you know. <laughs> they, 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 I like that. They, uh, they, there weren't enough laws. They didn't have the background of, of law to protect property. And so for a few years there, it was a matter of could you seize the property? And then could you buy the judge? and then could you pay off the minister? I mean, it really was, there, there were no laws, and then there was, then there was uh, laughable uh, enforcement, and those, those guys are the ones who set themselves up controlling precious minerals, oil, natural gas, and uh, about everything else. And uh, these are the guys who became the, the new aristocracy. Scared, tell, scared into, I was gonna say shitless, uh, but I won't. <laughs> uh b- uh by this v- emergence of this n- new political force which was uh the s- sort of subservient subservient uh, uh Yeltsin uh, period when when they when they there was the weak t- among he had his f- he had his uh, virtues but he had incredibly uh, incredible flaws and one was he he let this uh, this this rape of uh, his country take place and uh what was the thread there
0: We're talking about the aristocracy and just how they have how that works into the plot of your novel Well, because it's a
2: very fluid aristocracy and <laughs> what I was what I was working up to was the fact that uh, that uh, they
0: were get allowed
2: to be to keep all the money there was a meeting with Putin uh, uh, between Putin and the oligarchs, which oligarchs meaning like very very rich people and uh, and uh, and Putin laid it out for them. He said, "You you can keep all your ill-gotten gains as long as you stay out of politics." And the first man to try uh, try that, uh, see if that was the case, was Kudaykovsky, yeah. who was the richest man on earth, uh, and, uh, and found himself uh, in a, in a cage in Siberia <laughs> uh, as an example. And then if, uh, a number of, you'll find a lot of a lot of the uh, old oligarchs. When I say old, I mean they've been very rich for for quite a while. Uh, some of them are actually quite young. Anyway, they they own football t- clubs, they own, <laughs> own uh, they own different teams. They uh, they they're, uh, sail their yachts uh, around the world without touching land. Uh, a lot of th- a lot of these uh, oligarchs find it very timely and useful to go abroad, to because uh, they if they go back home. God knows what will happen.
3: Mm.
0: Well, you know, it, it strikes me too that this, that these, both these atmospheres, these places you've created, are really great places to tell a ripping yarn uh, and, and give us a, a great story. So I'd like to hear a ripping yarn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, I don't have any yarn on me right now. <laughs> Next
2: time I'll bring the yarn. Okay.
0: Good. Well, you could just pull your shirt apart. I
1: mean it's... I bet uh, that's the thing about um, Putin, isn't it? Because every year you get another official photograph of Putin without his shirt. (laughs) And it reminds me of um, Alan Ladd, who had it written in all his contracts that there were going to be shots of him without his shirt. I think Matthew McConaughey has the same contract. <laughs> you know, with
2: and Kirk Douglas.
1: And Kirk and, Douglas, and, and yes, and yes, in yes. the Vikings especially.
2: But I, I think Alanette also had a stipulation that the leading lady would, would be walking in a trough. <laughs> 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 mm.
1: Yes, a legend in his own built-up shoes. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Martin, talk about uh, creating the plot for the first. Uh, you know, give us. I, I,
2: I really half the time I don't know what my plots are. Some of the times they're just spaghetti, um, and I, I can't make any uh, sense out of them. Um, but sometimes they're really quite clever. But that, 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 that's <laughs> but that's pure chance. You know, you have enough books and, and you spend enough time, you actually. But they come upon you. Like I did a book called Rose. I didn't know what that book was about or who was who until I was halfway through, and then I said, Oh my God! You know, it dawned on me what I was, what this story was. It also was interesting for me in terms of the difficulty of writing. That book just flowed by comparison uh, to others.
1: Mm. You Love Rose, if you're a son of a Yorkshireman, you can't do anything else but love Rose. Yeah. Yeah. And Wiggin, uh,
0: you and George. <laughs> well, uh, with this, it sounds to me like uh, you, the characters really drive your books, that, that you, you just set, set Arcady loose. In amidst this circus. It's, a, it's a three stations. It's like a three-ring circus.
2: It is. It is. And it's got this, it's, its preposterous aspects. And then it has this, what I hope are very... It's an emotional book, among mm-hmm. other things. It's the most surreal and most emotional book that I've done. And, and uh, it's got... Uh, uh, so uh, it's done as if you're running. As if you're... It should, you should feel that you're running as you're, as you're trying to read the book. The pace is that quick... And and uh, and things are flashing by you, and you're not sure you're running in the right direction. Uh, it's, it's it's it should be uh, an, a breathtaking kind of exercise.
0: It's a a very Ken Russellish book. I I can see a good Ken Russell movie out of this book.
2: Is is I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it it is for this book I think it it uh, for me at least it uh, seemed that. You put us off balance from the get-go, and you. There's no way to even. And as you get partway through the book, you realize, well, there's no way you can get any kind of balance in an environment like this. Well, I
2: think that I, a lot of it has that, has the fact that when I go to Russia, I spend half my time down in the subways. What I'm doing in the, in the subway is I'm looking at the sign, at the the, the letters, the words of uh, what station uh, I, I'm on. Or, or what line, uh, subway line I'm on, and uh, the fact that I'm still sort of standing there for 10 minutes trying to make out the Cyrillic alphabet, break it down so I can know where to go, uh, is, you know, is not a bad illustration of the kind of, uh, kind of confusion that I'm in, mm. and, and I, I, I accept that. Uh, and it means that things happen that I don't otherwise, you know, I, I expect to see police chasing drunks I'm not expe- I do not expect to see the drunks turn around and chase the police, <laughs> but that happens. You know, I expect to see uh, the, uh, the men uh, uh, officers in the bar. I don't expect to see them on the floor of the bar, but they are. You know, it, it, it's time and again when I expect one thing, but I have to be f- open to a different experience. If I'm on a fishing boat in the factory ship in the Bering Sea, I do not expect women to be on board, but they are plenty of them, which makes it sort of a small country in itself. And, and I do not expect a woman in a, in a red evening gown to come down and grab Arcadi by the shoulder and whisk him off to the da- dance floor, but she does. You know, you just, you know, the, you, these people are walking around all the time, they're invisible most of the time, but sometimes you, you, you catch one, it's like catching a ghost, uh, and, uh, and that's a prize.
0: You, you know, Tony, I, I, I was thinking about your books, I'm too. still with a red woman coming <laughs> down in the red dress. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they're about for the grace of God. That's
0: <laughs> <laughs> she could have had me. <laughs> you know, I, I'm thinking about both your books. One of the things that makes mysteries so interesting is the way we approach them as readers. I think that when you're reading a mystery, you're naturally looking for details. And the writer, whether they're whether doing it on purpose or not, are putting in details and that the experience of reading a mystery, you could write a, a, just a general fiction book about the same set of circumstances. But the fact that we know it's a mystery, we're paying, I think, more attention to it. And it allows you as a writer to put us more in that place and tell us more things than just what's going on in the mystery.
1: Uh, if I can quote Churchill again, he said about Americans, uh, the Americans aren't above uh, uh, learning something as long as you don't sit out to teach them anything <laughs> um, and it's true if you're, you're, we're not writing history books mm. and we're, we're, we're trying to write um, uh, a tale and unless you give a damn about the character unless you, you know anybody that's ever read Arkady Renko you you love him as a, as, as a man it was somebody and it's the humor in him too and it's the observation and the fact that, um, I mean, like Philip Marlowe, I mean, he is, for me, the, you know, the, pre- the, the inheritor of Philip Marlowe because there is that strange sense of irony and observation that is there, and he allows you to be this vehicle that takes you into another world, and he gives a damn, and as um, Chandler famously said, you know, down those mean streets a man must go who himself is not mean, that's Arcady. You know, that's what I try and do with Jethro. Mm-hmm. Unless you give a damn about them, and feel that they give a damn about the people that they love and are willing to go right to the edge for them, break the rules, bend the rules, then there's, there's no room for you. There's no room for you to spend time with them. And the most difficult thing, I write in the first person. So I ask you to spend you know, two or three hours with my character, Jethro, and unless, unless you like it, um, you're never gonna come back. Like anything else, that's why you, we've kept on coming back to Arcadia, because you feel that it, this is a man. Who is seeing the world, seeing the irony, seeing the stupidities, seeing the humour in it? Uh, who's loved and lost, and who's been moved and changed? And that's why you'll spend time with them again, and it's like spending time with an old friend. So, you know, that for me has been, you know, the mark of what uh, Martin's written over the years, and what I've, what I've always taken from his novels, even the standalones. You know, you you end up being with his characters because they give a damn. When I first went to work in New York in the 70s, there was a wonderful poster cross-track, and it just said, give a damn. And it was wonderful. I Didn't know what it was for, it just said, give a damn. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that's right. Arcadia gives a damn, Jethro gives a damn, and if that's in your own makeup, it's just like uh, tuning forks. You'll find that resonance, and you'll spend time with them.
2: Martin. Yes. <laughs> 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 I, I love. I, I you know uh, Tony is such a good uh, analyst of, of what's going on, and and it's it's, it's such a tricky thing. You, we're, we're writing, we're writing as well as we can, <laughs> and we're you know we're really, we really we we as writers, um, I, I'm I'm very much aware that this is this is what is going to be left of, of me. Mm. And, uh, and as far as I know, you only go around one time, you get one chance, and you seize it or, 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 you, or you let it go by. So, and that's the, what I want out of county. But uh, to do that, you can't have a, a superman. Uh, you have to have a man who often backs into situations. He, he's got a sense of probably the, the most, uh, the aspect of, of these heroes is that uh, they have a code of honor. They have. They have. They. They answered it themselves. They answered. They. They know when they're ashamed, uh, and at the same time they know when they've gotten hard. I mean, Harkati has gotten harder. Yes. Uh, o- over the years, and I recognize that. I haven't. I've turned into a puddle. <laughs> <laughs> but but he has, and it's a little bit like you know. Seeing him now, is a, a little bit like a well-used knife. He's thinner but sharper. And. Uh, and and you you have to go with him at the same time, you know. I, I love things that uh, you can do with Arkady you don't do with a with a real Superman. You know, it begins. Gorky Park begins with a scene between just about begins with him a scene between him and his wife, and he, he just wants to have some sex. <laughs> you know, they're she, they're married for God's sakes, and and then he then he then he talks about the demographic obligations, you know, of the need to keep the population uh, at a certain level, and and I. You know, you, you just, with a guy like that, I mean, you, it's, he's, there's a sort of a, um, a lovable aspect of, uh, it's just plain human. Uh, his weaknesses are, are, uh, are pretty, uh,
0: pretty evident. You know, also in, in both these books, what keeps things ticking along well are the characters other than our main characters. I love Genya. Mm-hmm. A- and, and Victor Orloff, he <laughs> uh, who is, he says, uh, there's a great line, of, well, let's see, you couldn't piss straight enough to hit a barn, his aim had improved. <laughs> I, think, I, I love these kind of side characters. And, and i like you both to talk about you know, the, the ancillary characters that in some ways you know, really make the main character as well. Yeah.
1: Well, all, all the characters, uh, I, again, I cheat, I steal. I mean, it's whenever <laughs> Jethro is involved in anything, the, if he keeps on talking about himself, uh, you get bored. But, so I, I have him coupled up with um, uh, Buggy Billy, who also has a double life, and is called uh, Ray, Ray Carmen. Um, and then he gets to meet somebody in the British Secret Service called Simon Bozenkett. Simon Bosenquet I went to art school with, so I stole his name. I thought, it's great. <laughs> My name's Bozenkett, Simon You Yeah, that's great. Um, and it's I try and couple Jethro up with, with other interesting characters so that you get, you know, basically it's a buddy movie in serial form. So that there are always buddies where there are two of them, and it, for a, a time uh, within different chapters, you just get to see a different facet of Jethro. And that's why you know, when Martin was talking about uh, you know, people spending time with Arcady, you get to know more of Arcady through their eyes. Mm. And that's what I always find in, uh, in Martin's work. You, you, it's, you get to know more about the person that you've really invested your time in. And again, that's the, the mechanism that I try and use in mine. I mean, uh, I, again, I stole it. I mean, I based mine on the young Michael Kane of, mm. um, of Alfie and the Yipkris file. Um, uh, and not a lot of people know that, but, um, <laughs> uh, and it's that, it's, um, uh, again, uh, I'm a child of, of my times, I'm a child of the media, I'm a child of film and television and radio and, uh, and magazines and uh, photo um, a- annuals, and um, uh, so uh, for me, that's, that's uh, what it's Michael Caine as a cat book. Or Cary Grant playing Michael Kane as a cat book. <laughs> <laughs> or Tony Curtis playing <laughs> Cary Grant. <laughs> playing <Michael Caine. laughs>
0: Martin, tell us about creating some of the, the side characters because they're almost as much fun when we get to. Well, them they as are fun. Like I mean, really, to you know,
2: to, a, to a degree, this is like a circus, mm-hmm. and you've got uh, it, it's uh, e- each person. There's an act here in this ring, and that a different act in another ring, and particularly in this book, which is so spare and full at the same time. Mm,
0: it's I agree it's it's a it's really quick read but it's just rich with so much going on and so bizarre.
2: <coughs> so there's that curious tension at least intended mm-hmm. of, of that rushing along with the pace but then knowing there's so much information is coming your way and you want at the same time you know uh, you want uh, the reader to sort of want the uh, these ancillary characters not to go away, you know, to, to stick around. I, I want to know more about about this person.
0: That's the real trick, I think, that both of you manage is, you no know, matter who we're with, we're, we really enjoy it when we come and when we're with when we're with Jenny, we go, oh, this is so great. I really love this kid, and, and when we're with Victor or, or whoever mm-hmm. we're with, that's a really that's an interesting, you know, that's a that's a tough feat to pull off. Well,
2: it's tough unless you have fun. <laughs> And when you have fun, suddenly that loosens up everything. I, it, uh, Ar- is uh, is well served by having someone like Victor, who is even more sardonic than Arcadi. <laughs> so you know we have a we have a s- a spectrum here, and uh, I, I I love I love between Arcadi and, and uh, Victor and Victor's car. Uh,
0: <laughs> it's a the Lada. Now tell uh, us what, it, what what I don't know Russian uh, cars. What, the is the, lo- what is the What is the American equivalent of a Lada?
2: American equivalent of a Lada is is a cardboard box
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> with wheels. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a small, very inexpensively made car, uh, and it would look. It was a it was a, a dream when, when nobody had a car. Now everybody has a has a, has a, a Toyota, and so the, that that's it's gone its way. But it's gone its way to such a degree that I have it in the book, and and it's true, which is uh, sad and crazy, but there, are, uh, there was at least one area in Moscow, uh, an area called the Golden Mile, right outside the Kremlin, from the Kremlin to the, to the Arbat, um, and uh, Ladas, Russian Ladas, are, uh, are not allowed to stop there or park. There's really
0: a no Lada zone? There's a no
2: Lada zone. <laughs> it's a gated community, and it's it, it's you know it's, it's as bad as us, but then that extra leap forward uh, that uh, only Russians will do. And I mean it's it's good because and, and Arkady is hit by this. This is a Russian car. I'm on a Russian street. How can it be? I uh, no lot of. It. It's 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 crazy, and uh, it's it's that kind of moment when you come upon it that uh, the sun is shining and fish are. Uh, Fish got to swim and birds got to fly, and I've uh, got to have uh, Arcade's uh, insight until I die.
0: Yeah.
1: Can't help loving that car of mine. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any questions from the audience? Yeah. Over there. I've a
3: question for Martin, which is
0: that uh, this is a cynical
3: question. I love your work, and I think a little. driven by your publisher versus you feel you got another one coming on because you write about stuff
2: having nothing to do with him well the publisher would love the publisher would love to uh have one of your have a bell around my neck and uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and then f- uh, milk me ferociously uh, and I would do it if it if I worked that way and he, the the publisher is just doing what any you know what any cost conscious uh, publisher will will do it but I I take uh, I take longer and I do other books, and I do other books be, because I think it will help me uh, keep Arcadi fresh. So the next book I do will not be an arcade and but I may, but I'm going to see if I can pick up some, some threads from this book and, and present it uh, as part of the next arcade Whether people remi- remember that or not, I, I don't know, but it's it intrigues me to to uh, to try it. I mean, there are there. Are, Different aspects, things that you want to get, uh, want to accomplish with different books, uh, and I, I can't, I can't do it as a as a milk cow. The publisher doesn't go, oh. No, the public, the, you know, I, 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 I've been, I've been blessed. I've had nothing but good publishers and good editors, all my life. I've had the best, and they always gave me a break, and none of them really, uh, you know, they all set out to protect me.
3: in Russia? I mean, how often do you go back
2: and? I go back about, if I'm, if I'm doing a book, I'll go back two, two or three times. Um, before, you, before you start writing, while you're writing? Both, because okay. I, I, quite often, uh, the, first, the, the first visit is to set up the second visit. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I don't know what the questions are gonna be until I, until I find out I don't know the answers. Uh, I mean I mean, answers beyond Googling which, which, which is, is a great uh, you know, time saver uh, and I appreciate it, but there are things that you can only get, uh, things you'll only see on the, on the, on the ground. I was, em and I were once in Bora Bora and this uh, heavy set executive type with a cigar um, was uh, lying in the blanket next to us and this very bouncy young woman, probably a, uh, his executive secretary, came bounding up to the and She said, Irv, it's salty. And he took the cigar and said, it's the Pacific, babe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you, you don't know the basic things. Like, it, it's salty until, you, <laughs> the, until you've been there and, and jumped in the water.
1: <laughs> Is it true they call it Gogol in Russia? Oh,
0: met. <laughs> you've set them up and I'll try not. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, uh, how often do you go back to, to London? I mean.
1: Once a year, at least. Once a year. Yeah. I've got family back there still, so it's I go back.
0: Could you talk about uh,
1: going back? Well, I go by virgin <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: no. Just, talk about how you know you the interplay between your childhood and the way you see it now. How that like plays into your writing because that must be pretty weird. I mean, it's cha- well, I mean, no, no, can, the, it's the, clean, the, isn't it? The the,
1: the, the, the England and the London I write about doesn't exist anymore. It Mm -hmm. probably didn't exist when I was there. Um, It's all a construct. Your love of country, the way you project your country. For me, uh, you mentioned Ken Russell, what he did to Len Dayton's book. Um, Anyway, um, uh, but for me, it's the music of Delius. Um, uh, It's it's various painters. It's some buildings. It's some parts of the country. And all of those are the things that I fell in love with, some of the poetry, Um, some of the films and that's that's my England and everybody makes up their own country everybody finds those things those correlates that touch them Um, I can hear the work of Delius and be brought to tears again Ken Russell did a wonderful I urge you it's it's available here on on DVD now but his life of Frederick Delius with just for an hour in black and white was just the most wonderful most wonderful thing um, but that for me, I mean I find, uh, remember that wonderful um, Jimmy Webb uh, song where Richard Harris sings about leaving his cake out in the rain <laughs> and he, he couldn't bake it anymore or it t- and it took so long to bake. I've never worked out what the cake meant. But I always think of that when I go to London because even though I uh, grew up there and I went to school, art college there, and, and in, I was in advertising for 15, 20 years there, even my London, I get lost. It it, it warps. It's like something that has been left out in the sun or the rain, and it becomes plastic. And I go to places believing that they are absolutely going to be there, and they don't exist anymore. So it's strange. It's a a moving diagram, but my London has gone. When I go back, um, it doesn't sound like London anymore. It's the whole sense I've been American now. And I'm an American, and proud to be. Thank you. (laughs) Um, But I go back, and it doesn't sound like the London of my youth. Mm. Uh, or the London of you know when it might when I was in my twenties or thirties, it's just not there. Um, but it, it morphs. I look at London as really being the first America because you talked about earlier the um, the diaspora of uh, so many different groups into the East End of London, uh, religious persecution, political persecution. I mean, when you tell people that Joe Stalin and and, and Lenin, they were in the East End of London. So was Trotsky. Um, or that I tell you that Claude Rains uh, was an East End boy. Who knew that? I don't. Anyway. <laughs> but it's it it took um, the the disenchanted, the disenfranchised of Europe long before there was an America. And it continued to do so when America took, you know, give me your tide what your tide, your you're hungry and your poor? Yeah. And your iPods and your yeah, you, do. you need a
2: Wretched mass.
1: You're you're
0: wealthy. Yeah, you're wealthy. <laughs> anyway. You're wealthy, your resources.
1: Listen, people complain about America, but everybody still wants to come here. Mm. You know, magical country. I love what this country is and what it stands for. That's the way I can get the sympathy vote, you see.
0: Martin, one, one last question I have to ask you. You talked about visiting Russia. I can't imagine you could even or would want to go to most of the places that you describe in this book at the, unless you do so with a bodyguard. Do well, he I, got to, I go. I go there with a bodyguard. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> absolutely. Oh, <really? laughs> okay. yeah. No, you know,
2: that's a prerequisite. And, you know, you're. I, if you, I had a, had a couple of experiences of being uh, being around some uh, mafia who who weren't going to uh, throw me into the campfire, but then I've been with some who who uh, had that had a certain potential, uh, and uh, I'm absolutely there with my friend. Uh, my friend Sasha, the man with a, with a, 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 a colonel in the police, mm. and uh, I, I stick close to his side as we, uh, when we go around the uh, tunnels of uh, three stations. Absolutely. I want to come back and enjoy it. You
0: know. <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you for joining us this evening. If there are any more questions... Thank you for joining us this evening and I'm hoping that everybody here will buy at least one if not two or three books because we're here because we all like to read and that kind of communal experience is important. And it's important to support these bookstores because they're giving us the space and time to talk to these wonderfully intelligent and perceptive men who entertain us in all of our hours. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Martin and Tony, for coming here. Thank Thank you. Thank you.